more familiar Alvin Lee lyrics. It's a Friday. It's a, I just noticed right before the show went on, it's Friday the 13th, no less. And uh, it is a Brent Winters kind of day. I think we've got him for the full show today. Roger Sales, your host. Radio Ranch, our little, the nombre of our little get-together. And, of course, we're on the People's Patriot Network, and we're glad that you're along with us. Uh, Brent is here. Chris has already joined in. And I'm sorry for the difference in the sound and stuff. I just have a, it's difficult for me to run out and run down to the computer store and find a real hard-to-find little gadget. Uh, that's just not something you do here. Got Brent, you're banging around in the kitchen, I guess. And, uh, yeah, I bumped, I bumped my glass, but go ahead, Roger. Yeah, that's okay. So I'll try and get out and get that done this weekend, see if I can find one of these little yokes. And otherwise, I'm relegated uh -huh. to using these earbuds. And I thought that my apples would do better than these other ones that I'm using now. And that's why I did that early check sound check with you, Brent. And you couldn't hear me. Yeah. So something with right. the Apple headphones, the, the microphone, doesn't hook into this system and work. So anyway, we're back to something that does work. It might not be ideal, but it is what it is, and at least we can get on the air and have a discussion here today, which everybody looks forward to traditionally on Fridays when you're on board, Brent. How you doing in the last week, and you got anything particular on your mind to kick us off today? Oh, I still can't get over what I did yesterday. I'm, I got a good night's sleep because I worked up to it, but I made an argument before the Seventh Circuit, and, and uh, it was only a 10-minute argument. They only gave me 10 minutes, but you you worry over it like a dog worries over a bone for about four or five days before, you know, trying to make sure that there's nothing that could not be said that you would not answer, no stone left unturned. And, uh, but I've never, on the other hand, ever been to court that something didn't happen that I couldn't have imagined would have happened. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes didn't make any difference, just nothing. But that's what happened yesterday, which is normal. But it was uh, an eventful time because there are only two judges in the federal appellate world of recent memory that are of widespread fame and one of them is judge posner from the seventh circuit and the other one is judge easterbrook from the seventh circuit judge posner is now retired i believe and uh, easterbrook is the other one and easterbrook has a certain reputation in oral argument people i watched him decimate the two lawyers that argued before i did and i'd read an article about a law review article not long ago about uh, the a colleague of Judge Easterbrooks at the University of Chicago Law School that defended George Ryan or defended George Ryan's case before the appellate court and this fellow had been a colleague at the long law review article about Easterbrook and what he had done in that case and uh, well, it was instructive in the extreme because he he's tough and uh, people have different views about why and how and should he be. And But uh, in 10 minutes, you'd think a guy couldn't do too much damage, but <laughs> he, did. <laughs> he did what he could. So that's what I've been up to. And uh, so my mind has been focused exclusively on that. Um, 
And I, while the world falls apart otherwise, I suppose. It's doing that at a pretty good clip. It's been a slow week. There's a lot of things happening underneath that are important, but the, you know, the surface stuff. One good thing happened this week. Yeah, lose your run. No, I, well, I hope not. I, you know, I have no idea what's going on. It's like a flying blind without okay. instruments. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 Trump kicked Bolton out of there this week, which was maybe a good sign. Um, they found a bunch of uh, these stingray things evidently around the White House and isolated around Washington. Do you know anything about that? I bet you didn't hear anything about well, that, did you? No, what's a, what's a stingray? A stingray is a about a $150,000 piece of equipment, evidently, that fakes yeah. a cell phone tower. And okay. any of the cell phones that are around it connect with it, and it is selective in that it will let calls go through to the regular tower, but otherwise it sucks up data. And oh, okay. uh, the cops have been using them for a while in stings and stuff, but evidently the Israelis put a bunch of them around Washington, D.C., and they got caught uh, this week. And they, oh. uh, you know, senior intelligence anonymous sources said it had to be the Israelis. Of course, there's no, uh, you know, too much national media coverage of it, naturally. Uh, good Lord, so this, what if, if, if this really is a diet, don't they? Well, I, of course. You yeah. know, that's what it says in the protocols. It says in there, if you ever get caught, deny, deny, deny. We see that put forth on a regular basis. Um, while you were talking about the Seventh Circuit, obviously, is in Chicago. Uh -huh. um, I had one opportunity in that soiree I had with the IRS and uh -huh. to take that case to the 11th Circuit. And uh -huh. I, was, I was scared to death, A, because that's an intimidate, even for an attorney that's uh, somewhat accustomed to it, for a poor old pro per, it's just downright scary because you don't get up in front of one judge, generally. You get up in front of several. What, three are, the, are in bank, right? Right. And so, uh, and the question was, and I really wanted to take it up to the 11th Circuit because I knew at that point that anything from the appellate level on is considered precedent. And my issue was that I had not really found this until after the district court hearing. And it's, you can't put stuff in after the hearing. That was part of the problem. And the issue, Brent, is pretty interesting. Ralph Winterroot has found the same thing, evidently, um, because my teacher is the one that hammered all this regulatory stuff into me, what the different regulations are and how to go back in the, in the Code of Federal Regulations. And you can go back in there and go to a regulation, and at the bottom, if it's a revision of a previous regulation, it's got the previous regulation referenced. And so you can go back, in, in my case, I had to go to Microfish, but you can go back and trace those regulations. But you know where they all stop, don't you? Where? 1954. Oh, that'd be the, when, when the tax code was passed. Well, it was, yeah, when it was put into place. It was passed by the House of Representatives. It was never passed by the Senate or signed by the President because it just relates to D.C. And since you're a resident, it applies to you. But regardless, what I found was every regulation 
that I traced and found, uh, thanks to Ralph Winterroot's diligent research, I think he's come up with all uh -huh. of them, and I understand better why now. But if you trace all those regulations back, every one of them are what's called interpretive regulations. And they're not substantive in that they apply to everybody because they don't ever go through notice and comment. So they're just strictly internal regulations. Those are what interpretive ones are. But I wanted to go up to the 11th Circuit. That's a beautiful, have you ever been in that building in Atlanta? No. Uh -uh. It is a one of these old Atlanta buildings from original downtown, and it is spectacular. They got a law How library. How old is it? It's from the turn of last century. And okay. you walk in and the whole, it's one of those where there's an atrium and a whole big area underneath is the law library. Mm -hmm. And you can go in there and access the law library and then all the rooms are in different parts of the building. But it's very intimidating to go into that appellate level arena because that's kind of what it is there anyway. And those three imposing appellate level justices. And I, w I didn't want to go up there uh, for one thing for fear that I'd take and screw up the argument. Mm -hmm. You know, really. Right. Uh -huh. Because it's such well, a valid legal argument, they've got no uh, due process substantive regulations in place for IRS. They're all interpretive, which means they're internal. Well, yes, but I would say also that all regulations are interpretive. That's all a regulation is. It's an attempt by one group to interpret the law that's passed or the, or the constitutional provision. Go ahead. It is, but there's three types. And this is what I learned with, my, with Gary Bryant hammering this stuff. There's a couple of Supreme Court cases. I think one of them's Chrysler versus Brown. And they go into these regulations in great detail. And there's much more there than reach it looks on the surface if you haven't studied into them. There's three types of regulations. There's the first one's called the statement of policy. And it's just simply that, a statement of policy internally for the agency. The second one is called interpretive. And, and those are the ones that are for interagency rules and stuff. And the third one is the one that has teeth and it's called a substantive regulation. And what separates it is that it has to go through another layer of due process. If you go to the Federal Register, you'll see there in big bold headings, notice of proposed rulemaking. And they lay out the regulation, and then at the bottom they say, if you've got any, uh, any contribution, objection, or whatever, here's the person to contact, and you've got so many days to get it in. And then they're supposed to take all of those into account, regurgitate the regulation in its final form, and at the heading in the Federal Register it says, notice of final rulemaking. And of course that's another layer of due process that's laid into the administrative process. Well, Roger, I'm going to take a different approach to that whole thing and say, uh, state my position right up front, all of that is hooey, all of it. What the Supreme Court says about it, the administrative regulations themselves, it's all unlawful, and it is the, the purpose of the evil ones, of the useful idiots of the evil empire, to get our heads caught up in all of that stuff that is absolutely meaningless. Every administrative law, every, what do you call it, administrative code, regulation, is an executive order, period. That's what it is. 
You can bluff them all together and just say that's what the executive says. The president of the United States says this. He puts these orders out to his people, and he says, this is the way I want you to deal with the tax code or this rate or this uh, particular law that Congress passed. And because they're executive regulations, they should be utterly meaningless to the courts. The courts should be able to abandon them at will, use them if they want to. They're an independent branch of government. They should do that. Now, I know people, and people like Ralph, you mentioned him, and I've met Ralph, and, and uh, the work he does. A lot of other folks have done a lot of work in the administrative codes and regulations and trying to understand it, and it's all good. Maybe you can use it, and maybe it'll help. But uh, I know that when it comes to the tax law, there have been lawyers, and I won't mention their names. I don't want to insult them and make them think that I've, I've taken it wrong or I took them wrong or trying to criticize them. I'm not. They've spent their lives trying to use that kind of stuff in courts, and they've gone backwards for 40 years. We haven't gotten anywhere. And the reason we haven't gotten anywhere is because that's not law, period. And if it's not law, then why should I pay attention to it? In other words, if I go into court, if... Uh, if, it, if, it's if it's the only thing, thing I've got left to do, I'll pay attention to it. But what I ought to do is go into court and say no. The Constitution says that it's wrong to steal money. A taking of private property without due process of law is against the Constitution, and if it's knowingly done, it's a crime. That's the kind of things that I want to say. I don't want to even. I don't even want to go there uh, because. Number one, nobody understands it. Number two, it's not possible to understand. Ralph Winterout, I've read his stuff a lot, and he understands some things, but he's unable to put it all together. And the reason he's unable to put it all together for all of his hard work and intelligence is because it's impossible to put together. It's like the co it's impossible. It's senseless. It's set up that way, and I agree with you 100%. And in the fact that I got so frustrated with it that I said, "There's got to be a better way," and I found a way to extract yourself from it. Okay. Now let me ask you a question while it's on my mind because I got an email from a listener about this last night when I finally went over and checked the email box. I'm a little negligent at times. I'm sorry. Uh, on this letter and situation that Shane had, where I pinned that letter back to whatever, Miss Morris or whatever her name was, and it brought me to realize that the uh, submission to IRS should be handled in the form of service. And I was going to ask you, with your legal background, might as well do it right here on the air, how, what would you, on a letter, an initial letter, after that thing's filed at the Secretary of State, and you might even say seasoned for 30 days just to put the icing on the cake, and you want to submit it to IRS, because i got a listener and his wife that want to do that, and, and I, I told him I had not asked you about this, and I wanted to, how would you style a letter? Would you like put notice of service at the top? Uh, and citizenship evidence, bold and underlined like the heading of a, a notice and demand or something, and then follow it in there with that 1835 uh, quote, and, and you could embellish a little bit, but I don't think you need to. Uh, you know, basically tell them it's on file with the Secretary of State, lay that quote in there, see you later, adios. Uh, do you have any ideas or thoughts on that for us? I do, I do, I do. Uh, I wouldn't say anything to them, but here's what I would do. 
Not that I wouldn't do anything, but I wouldn't say anything to them for a couple of reasons. Number one, the folks you would say something to wouldn't understand what you were saying. If they did understand what you were saying, they uh, would laugh at it. If they didn't laugh at it, it'd make them mad and they'd try to come after you. You're not going to win. Everything you say can be used against you. You resist them in any way. Or they even have a hint that you're looking at them funny. They're going to come after you. I don't say that lightly and I don't say it without experience. Here's what I would do. I would do like Tarzan. You remember Johnny Weissmuller? Sure. Sure. We remember Johnny. And uh, Buster Crab used to be in the movies, and he played the part of him and old uh, Jester Harrison. Uh, Jester played the part of the natives that were eaten by the crocodiles and all that. But uh, one time there was a group of bad men from England, and they came to him, and they were in the jungle, and they said, Tarzan... Uh, we're going to ask you one question. I don't remember the details. The details don't matter. But they said, what if so-and-so said he was going to come after you and kill you? And he, they said, what would you do? And uh, he said, well, I wouldn't do nothing. They said, well, why wouldn't you? He said, well, they're the ones that made the threat. I'd wait for them to come after me. And then we'd fight it out. They'd have to come here. There's no sense me going to meet them. Now, that is would be valuable in some circumstances, don't get me wrong, but in this particular circumstance, I think that's good advice. In other words, uh, if you're going to do what you do with, with a, a monster like that, you don't, you don't try to talk to a grizzly bear or a pig who's trying to attack an old sow who is on the scrap because you're threatening her pigs. You don't talk to them. You get out of their way, and you wait for your chance to do what you want to do. And, and then if they do drag you in front of a tribunal, then... There's a time to bring out the law. To bring out the law against an administrative bureaucrat is to talk to a pig. It's like talking to a brick wall. Uh, and like I say, even if they do understand, they'll laugh at you or they'll rage at you. But there will be no peace, as the Bible says. I don't care so it's, if they laugh or rage. I care if they get that correspondence in my administrative file, which I think they're required to do. And that's the well, you've already got it. You've already got it on file, though, when you filed it with the appropriate uh, folk when you put your affidavit in. That, I would, that would be enough. And you bring that out the right time. It's probably me, Brent, because I've got a real penis erectus for these guys and uh, from what they did to me so many years ago. And uh, it just, I like to, now that I've figured out what, what they're doing and how they're doing it, I kind of like personally, and this is just me, and I understand everybody isn't like that. I like to rub their damn nose in it like you do with a dog when he poops in the living room. Well, you can, but Roger, a dog will get the point. These folks won't get the point. Dogs are smarter that way. Well, They won't get the point because they have too much security and they're, they're fallen creatures. Dogs aren't fallen creatures. They understand and they'll learn their lesson. Men do not understand and do not learn the lesson, especially when their eyes are blinded. Things we, I don't think we're, we're catching on to how bad it is and how bad it's going to get. I was just reading this morning uh, the words of Jesus Christ, and he said there'll come a time when brother will uh, turn in brother to death. Well, he talks about uh, fathers and mothers turning their children over to death because they don't think the way they want them to think. They're not part of the evil empire. They don't carry the flag in the, in the faggot parade. They won't do that, so they're going to be turning them over to death. That's what Jesus Christ says is coming. And these people are uh, 
They're fixed in their ways. They're blind to the truth. They don't have ears to hear. And it's not our job to cast our pearls before swamp. Yeah, you're dropping it. Uh, because if you do cast your pearls before pigs, he says they will turn and rip you open and trample the pearls into the mud. And as a former pig farmer of many years, I understand exactly what he's saying because that's what a hog will do if they're not in a good mood. They'll try to rip you open with that little set of teeth they have on the edge of their mouths, and I've seen that happen too. And they, they won't pay attention to pearls. They'll try to pick them up with their tongue, see if they can eat them, and when they decide they can't, they'll just let them drop back into the mud again. Okay, Go ahead. let me ask you a question. If, you, if people yeah. choose not to send this in and poke the pigs or stir the pig pile, if you will, yeah, yeah. If they send you that little letter, uh, I forget the number of it in that first series of letters we, that's really a uh, confirmatory writing, I think, and John thought, I think uh -huh. so too. Uh, we haven't uh -huh. received your tax return for the year 19, up the ump, whatever. Maybe that's when you send it back to them with a letter. Maybe, yeah, maybe. But boy, don't, don't say, if you do say something, don't say any more than you have to say, just to be forthright, two sentences. If you start trying to explain yourself, you're wasting your time. Matter yeah, of fact, no, you're making I, it worse, because they'll use it against you in court. That's of what course, I, I agree with you. Well, I think if you do it properly, they're never going to let that see the inside of a courtroom. But my experience with IRS agents, and a few times I assisted people in going to meetings and stuff, and, you know, we'd go out of our way to learn the code, thinking that it mattered, just like you said, and you get in yeah, with, those, with those goons that are in there, and but they don't know anything about that code. They've never even looked at it. All they know is they're supposed to grab you by your heels and turn you upside down and shake your pockets inside out. Um, what gets me, if you'll remember that Rousseau uh, Freedom Fascism movie, when Aaron Rousseau uh -huh. was talking to that uh, Cohen, I believe was his name, who was the commissioner of Internal Revenue Service, as we refer to him, the individuals representing Satan. And he said to him in Yiddish, and he was questioning him about the code or something, he said, you can't do anything about it. And that's always stuck with me. Uh -huh. I, I remember that very well, too. And Aaron was Jewish, so he understood that. Sure. And explained it. But uh, it, my advice is, I'm not making reference to taxes. I'm not making reference to whether or not you should pay or shouldn't pay or whether you owe or don't owe. What I'm saying is the Fifth Amendment is there for a reason. And if we're foolish enough to open our mouths when we don't need to open our mouths or put something on paper when it's not absolutely necessary, we're making a big mistake. The Bible says be quick to hear, slow to speak. And it also says he who opens his lips wide that conceals his lips, conceals a matter, is wise, and he who opens his lips wide will get destruction. That's pretty straightforward and pretty simple. Yeah. And it's said in many other ways throughout the pages of the writs of God, it's good advice not to talk unless you have to. I mean, if they've got the, the, the lid and they're nailing it on your coffin, well, then it's time to scream. I learned this in politics, too. People criticize you or want to fight with you, don't fight with them. I had I was in the court yesterday. The judge was trying to pick a fight with me. I didn't fight with him. And the Bible says, if you bear up under, Jesus Christ said this, if you bear up under the load, if you, if you stick it out under, 
you lay low and just bear up, then you will find safety. But you got to do it through to, to an end, to end the matter, in other words. And that's what has to be done here. And if we're looking to save ourselves, make ourselves safe, it's not going to happen. We are not the Savior. We are not the Savior. The Savior is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can save them. We can't do that. And so if we try to figure all these things out, what he wants us to do is not try to figure things out, but to simply find it out, find out what it is he said to do, and to simply do it, and that would end it. Well, he says, through the end, go ahead. Some of us are very stubborn, and we had to go and learn all that stuff to find out that simple answer that we were told when we were young and didn't listen to. Uh-huh. Well, I'm that way, too. Uh, everyone is. That's not, you, you can't, it's hard to accept how evil mankind is and how evil the evil empire is and how far we've fallen. We get so blind to it, we live in and among it, it swirls around us and then we become accustomed to the evil. And the more we're around it, the more accustomed we get and the worse it gets and we get accustomed to that too. The things that we're accustomed to today, I mentioned this last week, in politics would not have been tolerated 50 years ago, period. Yep. Uh, even as bad as things were, but it is getting worse. There's no um, no questioning that. And the reason it's getting worse is because we're getting accustomed to it. And people talk about oral sex in the in the in the in the Oval Office of the White House. That doesn't shock people anymore. It did 20, 25 years ago, and it should have. Where are we? It's up to us to say no to the madness. But if you open your mouth and just stress again, the Fifth Amendment is there for a reason. There is no way that any of us can say anything to the evil empire and say it in such a way that they won't use it against us. That's impossible as a practical matter. There may or may be exceptions, but as a practical matter, I've watched everything that you say can and will be twisted against you. So there's nothing you can do. And these letters that people write to the IRS... I've watched people, Roger, go into court and uh, win a full-blown criminal trial. I was there. I was one of the lawyers there when it happened. And then the IRS come back and say, look, and then get acquitted. Well, they didn't get acquitted. They won the trial because they went on appeal. The appellate court threw it back and said the, the government made a mistake and uh, we're undoing the conviction. And... Um, and then the government come back to that person who was sprung and say, well, we've got this letter you wrote to us uh, 12 years ago. And it was a letter you wrote to us telling us you're not liable for taxes. And uh, we've got this. You know what the jury is going to do with that? And it is true. A jury sees a letter like that. You're convicted. That's the end of it. You try to explain to the IRS that you don't owe any tax. The jury is not going to buy it. Uh, so there's no sense doing that. There's no sense giving them. Even if you think you're right, there's no sense giving the enemy fodder for your own destruction. Go ahead. Well, I don't have much to say with that. I understand totally that the the jury is going to, they're going to use the, you need to pay your fair share appeal, and all of them are just about as stupid as the ones that are walking around on the street, and they all buy it too, simply because we've all been conditioned into that, programmed, if you will. Chris, you were going to say something? I got a second witness for Brent, and I recall Ron White of the uh, Tea Party Comedy Tour, or what it was called. Uh, he was talking about being in a bar and being rather drunk and outspoken, and 
Of course, they take an exception holding out the street, and he said he had the right to remain silent, but he didn't have the will. And that can be a real dangerous circumstance, <laughs> not having the will to remain silent whenever uh, it can put you in harm's way. Uh, I agree with Brent. This is getting to be a really dangerous time when the FBI or the IRS can make up lies. Remember, as Brent observed, and I totally agree, and I think Ralph tends to uh, not comprehend completely, these private for private profits corporate agencies created under the executive powers of executive orders and his chief executive officer corporate capacity uh, are really, really dangerous because they're all self-interest. They have destroying you at their interest. Sorry for the beep, beep in the background. And um, they are prosecuting an agenda that is absolutely to destroy you by any means. They'll make up lies. They can. They have the privilege to lie and be excused from it under 18 U.S.C. 1001. We don't have that privilege. We're held to a higher standard. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. How the hell can men excuse men from the Ten Commandments to the Creator? Anybody that buys those preposterous lies deserves to get what they earn. Well, no, that's right. But we. The right to remain silent is not an option. It's a duty. And that's what the word right means. It's an old Germanic word. It bespeaks one's duty. His right is his jurisdiction. It is his duty to act. To speak when God wants him to speak. And to not speak, to remain silent when his maker wants him to remain silent. Don't forget, all of our duties are delegated to us from our maker. And duty only arises out of law. How does he delegate those duties to us? By his law, his standard, his, the revelation of his will. By the revelation of his will, we understand our duties, that is, our rights. And silence is a duty. So is, by the way, speaking a duty. That's why we have free speech. Our Constitution protects it. And the First Amendment and our Constitution protects the duty to remain silent under the Fifth Amendment to our federal or United States Constitution. So this, our first instinct should be silence, not, not talking. As my mother said when I was growing up, Brent, do not enter a room mouth first. Always enter with your mouth closed. Wait till you know what's going on before you open your mouth. That can take quite a while. And the first, your first instinct is don't talk. And if that's not your first instinct, you're disobedient to your maker, and you're going to suffer the consequences. Loose lips, as they used to say, sink ships. It's better to be silent. Well, what's that? came from the Lusitania incident. Oh, yeah, that's right. It, it, it is true. Uh, it's, it doesn't make any difference whether every hooker and every port that the Navy pulls into knows what time you're going to get there. You better not tell anybody. That's different. And by the way, all that kind of thing is true. Everybody else might know, but even if you don't know, even if you do know, don't say. Because coming from you, it can be used against you. And I say that with respect to your family. Forget our military forces. That they're, that's not the foundation of what they do. The foundation of what they do is us. And if we have no loyalty to our duty of to remain silent, well, what's the use of having a military? 
if we're not doing what God wants us to do uh, as Americans, why do we need a military? We're going to be destroyed anyway. Uh, no military might will ever protect a godless people. Go ahead. We need it to go out and secure the world's resources. We got a couple of people that yeah. joined us, and I want to be sure to recognize them. Samuel first, and Stephanie second. Samuel, how you doing? You got your better phone today? Uh, back on the old one. Okay, I can tell the difference. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, That's okay. I, I had a different technical issue with it. I, I just. Uh... Anyways, there's. I was listening to this guy. I think he might be a bit of a charlatan. But I want to run it by Brett. These are two Bible references that he made that I've never heard of before. Uh, the first one is, um, he said the Noah's Ark uh, hit land on the 17th of Nicaea, making it the same time that Jesus would have re resurrected. So 14, 3 days, 17. That was the first reference. And the other one, he said that the Levites went to encamp, and encamp in the sign of a cross. And at the center of the cross, where the cross crosses, was where the Levites were. And at the heart of the heart of the Levites was the covenant, um, referencing to the future where Jesus Christ would have been on the cross and his heart. Oh, well, first... I'll just give you my conclusions for what they're worth. I've never met anybody that's been able to reconstruct the ancient calendar of the Hebrews and apply it to our day and bring it forward. There are those that claim they have, and it is an important subject, and if it can be done, I think that'd be great. But I've never been convinced that anybody's done it. Uh, what he says is a, a nice platitude about Noah's Ark landing on the day Jesus Christ was was crucified or was it what did he say when he rose from the dead well, either way uh, either way that that's too thin for me there are so many things in the simple revelation of God's will that I don't know yet and I don't know how to apply and I don't understand why would I go out on a limb and try to fight speculation and hypotheticals and then bring that to the world as though it's something they should pay attention to. I know a famous evangelical who's highly respected, and um, again, I don't want to criticize him just to criticize him, but I listened to him talk one time. You can go to YouTube and listen to him. Uh, talk about what kind of beer he likes best and why. Now listen, if you've got the ear of thousands of people and they're waiting with bated breath to hear what you're going to say next, and all you can talk about is what brand of beer is best, you're being foolish. A thousand people, or 10,000, or 50,000, if you've got them for 30 minutes, that just cut that in half, 1,000 people cut in half, that's 500 man-hours you control on YouTube, and you're going to talk about beer. And, well, well not of that beer, you're going to talk about which one you like best. That's even worse. I mean, if you were talking about the laws of nature and how beer is made, that's rather fascinating. That's, that's about the way God does things. But to tell me what kind of beer you like so that other people will go out and buy it and try it. I uh, guess, I don't know why he does it. But we don't need to waste people's time. Matter of fact, we're going to get it. If you know as much as he knows about the Bible and he spent his life studying and writing and he wants to talk about that, he's going to answer for it. Um, and to talk about speculative things that don't matter, 
such as, uh, this is speculation, even if it's true, no, it could be true, I don't know, but it's speculation, speculation. The law of God and our common law, which are the laws of nature, doesn't tolerate speculation. If, you're a, if your answer to a question on the witness stand is speculation, uh, you'll be objected to. It'll be thrown out. Speculation is not part of our understanding. All of life is based upon evidence. And if life isn't based upon evidence, as God says, then all of life is a waste. We're not to be speculative in our approach to God's revelation. If there's something there that demands speculation, let's concentrate on what we can know for sure. When we do our law classes on Saturday, we did evidence in 45 weeks. Now we're in the law of promises and contracts. I require the participants to write three sentences out of a passage of the Bible, for instance, in this case, the speech of contracts, uh, the law of promises, and I want them to write three things that they know that it says absolutely for sure without question, and three things that they know it absolutely does not say without question. Three, three things that it does say, three things it doesn't say, no speculation allowed. You bring up some speculative matter, well, I wonder if they, he meant, no, forget it. There's no time in life to even talk about things like that. You go with what you know for sure in life and nothing else because all of life is a matter of evidence, even sitting in the chair you sit in. I mean, the evidence is there, apparently, or you wouldn't have sat down in it. You think it'll hold you up. When you put the key in the automobile and start it, well, the evidence is there. You've had experience. You figure it'll start, so you don't question it until you get evidence otherwise. Evidence, 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 that's all it's about. The law and the testimony, are, the law is evidence of what God will do in the future. His testimony is evidence of what he did in the past, and either you go with the things you can know for sure or you waste your life away. So that's my response to that thing about the calendar. I'm not convinced. The evidence is not not enough there. It's speculative. The second thing that you brought up, I've forgotten. What was that again? Will you remind me, please? Oh, the uh, Levites encamping in the Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, the Levites did it, or the all of Israel encamped, and when you put it all together, it's around the rectangle. The rectangle, of course, is the rectangle that's around the tabernacle, and it's uh, a special place inside that rectangle, that fence that's put around there, as it were. The, the militia of the several, of the several 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 several tribes, encamped in certain places around that tabernacle with their banners up, armed, by the way. And when that tabernacle was torn down, it didn't move. They picked it up, the Levites did, right there, and they all moved in that formation. And it did form the appearance of a cross. But I want to add this, and again, it comes back to speculation. There's no place in the Bible, when I say no place, I mean no place that you can prove beyond question that Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross. That's, that's not possible. Why? Because the words don't demand it. Is, it. is it possible that it could have been a cross? Yeah, it's possible, because the Romans did that. But that's speculation. All the Bible says, every time it uses the word that is translated in the Latin text of the, Vul- uh, the Latin Vulgate, of Jerome from the fourth, uh, from the fifth, uh, around 400 A.D., he uses the word crucifix. That's Latin. It means cross. That's an interpretive translation. The Greek text doesn't say that. The Greek text just bespeaks. It just bespeaks a word that speaks of a of a timber. 
something made of wood. Why? That's the important point, because the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone who hangs upon wood. The old versions say tree, which is an old word for wood. We used to talk about, when I was at home, people still driving, some around there still driving horse-drawn wagons, and they'd talk about axle trees. Why did they talk about axle trees? That's what we called them, axle trees. On wagons, they were still, probably still called axle trees. And I'm, the old folks always called them that. Why? Because they used to be made of wood, so they're called axle woods. And then they would talk about double trees and single trees. Why did they call them double trees and single trees? Those are, that's the length of wood that goes behind the horse in, a, in, a, in the traces when he's standing there with the tugs on both sides of him, reaching up to the collar on the harness. And the axle, axle or the... Uh, the uh, double tree was for a team of horses, and the single tree, of course, is for one horse. Well, they were made of wood. That's why the tugs attached to the ends of the single tree. So tree means wood, and to be crucified, or not crucified, see the word crucify is the verb form of crucifix. That's speculation. Why do we want to go to speculation? Oh, my goodness. So now, because of the Latin Vulgate of Jerome, we all say it was a cross. We have the sign of the cross. The Romanist does the sign of the cross because the Latin Vulgate is their official translation. But that's not what the Greek text says. Well, what's the official Bible? Well, that's in the original tongues. And all it says is tree, and that comports clearly and exactly with the law of God, cursed is everyone that hangs on a, on wood, and that's why traditionally in, in the English-speaking world and even beyond into the north of Europe, when you hang people, you hang them on what? Wood. You hang them on the limb of a tree, or if you make a set of gallows, you make them out of what? Wood. Isn't it amazing? Even in more modern times, gallows made of wood. Why? It's because it's part of our custom and tradition. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And then God has other rules to go with that. But the point I'm getting at is to say that the cross is part of Christendom is pure speculation. And to say that anybody has discovered the calendar uh, right at this point, I've not been convinced, is pure speculation. Well, that's just a response from what I understand about the Bible and from what I get from it. I hope it's helpful. Thank you. It was very thorough. Well, appreciate you asking. That's very important. What's that? It was very thorough. <laughs> I, could, I could have said more. But I think I've been getting, getting off base a little bit. I try, and I, I, I encourage others to, and you got to work at it to stay with facts. The Patriot community is enamored with the distant drums. They hear them out in the woods. They think that it may be true, and they can't help but following the sound of those distant drums. But they're nothing but distant drums. They're a distraction. To talk about the cross, for example, is an ugly, dirty distraction. I see people crossing themselves. I saw a fellow recently cross himself. I knew he wasn't a Romanist. I said, why do you do that? I said, well, I just think it's a, a nice, a nice a custom, and it reminds us. And I said, well, it may, but remember, if the Bible doesn't authorize that kind of, that kind of, I could call it Jesus junk. It's just trinkets and trash and speculation, the additions of men. We've got enough problems dealing with our flesh to have to add all that trash. And here's what happens. Once you add all that baggage, that is extra-biblical and pure speculation, you will begin to make that the main thing. Why? Because you're human. That's the way it always is. There's no getting around it. You will substitute ceremony for the will of God and obedience to him. 
And that becomes the important thing. That's why in American traditionally we've distinguished the kneelers from the non-kneelers. That was the idiom we used. Well, what's a kneeler? He's a guy that's more interested in ceremony and tradition and pomp than in fancy clothes for preachers and vestiges and hats and all in crosses and hanging on the walls and blah, blah, blah. Then he is the Bible. You do all that beautiful stuff and have those wonderful cathedrals and all of a sudden the written word of God goes away, it recedes from consideration, as it were. Let's don't get caught up in that. Remember, the center of the Reformation, the center, not the crucifix, not the, not the mass. The mass was the center of so-called Christ, so-called, so-called Christendom, D-U-M-B, for centuries, the mass. Which, of course, it's like, it's like most other things, it's not only is it not speculation in this case, it's just pure Babylonianism. The Bible says it don't have anything to do with the wafer and all that. But for centuries, that's all they had. The Reformation came and they said, wait a minute, God has spoken, we know his will. And they said, we're going to make what he has said the center of Christendom. And then the pulpit became the center. And um, Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, the 11th of 12 sons, um, goat herders from the, from the Alpine mountains in Switzerland. And he became a priest. One of the sons, the youngest one, youngest one became a priest. And he watched as Swiss boys by the hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands, would go away for high pay to be mercenaries to the Pope of Rome. The Swiss Guard, by the way, is still there. That's just a vestige of, of that old tradition. But uh, the Pope used to harvest the flower of Swiss boys to have them slaughtered on fields of battle. And it became such an ugly culture that he said, this has got to stop. And he began to speak out against it. It was destroying Switzerland, destroying their manhood. They didn't have any men. But they were caught up in the religiosity of, of Rome. And he said, this is wrong. And that was the jumping off point for the Reformation in Switzerland. And he spoke, he, he took the, the, the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and he laid it open in the, the Munster Church there in, uh, what's the name of that town, Switzerland, not uh, Zurich, Zurich, in Zurich, not Geneva, the German part of uh, Switzerland, not the French part. And he began to expound, to unpack verse by verse, verse by verse, clause by clause, blow by blow, the Gospel of Matthew every Sunday. And that huge, that church is huge. <laughs> Even back then it was big. And uh, people would stand out in the streets by the thousands trying to get in. They wanted to hear what the Bible said. People, when they found out somebody would tell them, of course, Rome got rid of him because he put the Scriptures center, front and center, instead of the Mass. And uh, he's the one, by the way, that came up with the doctrine that says, didn't come up with it, he was the one that first made it well known, other people believed it, that the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, it wasn't called the Mass, it's the Lord's Supper, that's different. Uh, the elements are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, symbols, not the reality. They point to the reality. And he's the one that made that part of the Reformation bigger than any place else, and it, of course, spread throughout Europe. Others had said the same thing, but he was the one that was able, because of his uh, fame at that time, to bring it to the forefront. 
So let's don't let's don't speculate, I guess, is what I'm saying. Let's talk about what we know for sure. Let's look at the evidence. What is the evidence? The law, the written word of God is the evidence of God's will. And the testimony is the evidence of what happened in the past. And the God's will is the evidence of what will happen in the future. Back to you, Roger. Well, that's uh, very eloquently put, Brent, as always. Let me uh, see what's on Stephanie's mind. And then Terrence called in and has joined up with us. We'll get to him in a second. Hey, Stephanie, welcome back. We haven't heard from you in a while. Oh, uh, God bless you guys. I'm glad to be talking to you. And I wanted to um, chime in and agree with um, Brent Tom Winters. On his advice about keep your mouth shut on the IRS there. So plus, I wanted to, um, um, been kind of busy. Um, my dad passed away, and so I, so I missed some of the law classes. And, and so the ones on YouTube, um, um, the last ones are like, uh, that I got were like in August 27th. So I'm trying to get the reruns and stuff. Um, and so I wanted to find a way to maybe get like an email to so that um, I can catch up on the ones I missed, plus in church. And then the other thing is on that tax court thing, um, Kurt and I, and you know, and listening to you, Roger and Brett uh, Winters on the tax court, you know, um, we can file. Well, hold on, Stephanie. Let me just interject. We didn't really discuss the tax court in this show previously. The, that's a different animal. I mean, in, in Atlanta, the tax court is in the 11th Circuit, in the appellate building. But I don't know how that's structured around the rest of the country. But, you know, the tax court makes you be the petitioner. In other words, they send you that 90-day letter. We called it a 90-day letter. It's a notice of lien. And, uh, it, but if you, they stayed in there, if you want to take this tax court, you have to petition them, which shifts the burden of proof to you. Right. I, and I understand. I understand what you're saying. And I, and I because I have been going through the same thing, you know, um, the United States Tax Court motion is dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. Well, the one thing I've got to say about tax court, and this is from my personal experience with a dear friend of mine, David Strait, is you don't want to be there. Because there's virtually no way you're going to come out of there a winner. Very, very, very seldom do you see somebody win in tax court. Is my experience, is that yours too, Brent? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's the pre Well, we're back to administrative. It's just an administrative court. Now, the Supreme Court has argued about that, but I don't think they ever landed. The truth is, it's, it's the president's court. Why do I say it's the president's court? Because it's the executive branch tribunal. It's not a court. It's a tribunal. It's the executive branch deciding what they're going to do with the law that they're enforcing. <laughs> There's no separation of powers there is what I'm driving at. So... That's the, they, they, these guys are, uh, there's no jury, no jury, and the rules of evidence don't apply if they don't want them to. Back That's to you, right. Roger. Well, I, my experience, Stephanie, was my dear friend David Strait, who wrote the foreword to my book. He's a self-made millionaire and just a real good guy. And uh, they came after him because of his political activity, actually. 
uh, because previously they'd given a blessing to this form of accounting that he was using in his business and they decided to change the rules. And they came back and he took it to tax court and they actually got, he hired this guy, I believe his name is Mims, uh, out of Houston. Brent, are you familiar with him? Michael Mims. You know, I've met him. Uh -huh. I've met him too. He's a little bitty guy. He's about five foot four. He's real short. And uh, David hired him and he had won a case in Houston for somebody for $10 million, an IRS case. And uh, he brought him in and Mims was very good. And he got the group leader on the stand under oath to testify that she had changed stuff on the record to get the case to that point. And it was right at the end of the day the judge went apoplectic and he called all of them into in camera in his uh, chambers and, and blessed them out. And the next morning they got up there and they continued to testify and they turned around and charged David Strait $675,000 and he had enough money to stroke him a check and be done with it. But that's the way they operate in there. Well, it's, it's the president's course. So due process doesn't really apply. There's no separation of powers. The judges are dependent for their pay and their position on the executive. So again, no separation of powers, no independence of the courts. If we don't have independent courts, we don't have freedom. The independence of the judiciary of the courts is the key to the separation of all powers of government, which of course says that uh, they each responsible to do what they know to be right, regardless of what the others say. Uh, we were talking this morning about George Ryan. George Ryan was governor of Illinois, and he was sent to federal prison for six or six and a half years, and he did absolutely nothing, nothing that would warrant any criminal prosecution. And uh, I was reading the papers back then, and I remember thinking to myself as I read the article, what did he do? I still can't see what he did. Eighty-some witnesses were put on the stand that were worked in his administration, over 80. And uh, they were all asked the same question. Have you ever seen George Ryan take a bribe? Have you ever heard of George Ryan taking a bribe and bribe? And not one of them said yes. But yet the jury convicted him of bribery and sent him to prison. That's a true story. You can read, and uh, there's more. Oh, it was incredible. But that was a railroad job to the hilt. But what I was pointing, the reason I pointed that out was because George Ryan is the one that said, uh, um, well, I'm not against the death penalty, he said, but uh, you fellows aren't giving these uh, people that are on death row any due process. And so I refused to execute any of them. There were 160 some or 200 on death row. He said, I'm not going to carry through with any of this. Why? Well, separation of powers. He's the governor. He didn't have to do what the courts tell him to do. And no law says he has to do what the legislature says to do if he believes it's wrong. So what he did was he put a moratorium on the death penalty. That means he stated. And he said, I'm not going to execute any of these fellas until somehow this situation straightens up to where people get due process when they're being prosecuted for murder. And uh, I feel like if you gave people, don't feel like I know, I feel like I know, if you gave people the due process they deserve that were charged with murder, we wouldn't have any execution, probably at all. Well, we might, but uh, very there'd be very few, but due process isn't given according to what God says. Uh, the law of God is very particular about due process and what has to be done in capital cases. 
and we're not doing it at all. Well, anyway, he did that. Next thing you know, he's indicted. Next thing you know, he's going to prison, and nobody knows why. That's what it boiled down to. But but uh, it could be could it be that he got tired of watching them execute these uh, black young black men from the South Side of Chicago, uh, like uh, assembly line? Could it be that? Because that's what they were doing. No question. Go ahead. I was just going to say he was bucking the Chicago machine. Stephanie, did we answer all these questions? Yeah, or I think one of your was how you could get those episodes you missed of Brent's uh, weekend uh, classes at church. Is that right? Yeah, yeah I heard that. I want to say something before, before even before she responds, and then she can respond. Um, Stephanie, I don't know the answer to that question, except to say I see more and more of them popping up on uh, on YouTube and on the the website, commonlawyer.com, go to the, I forget which button it is, maybe the media button, I don't remember. But they had almost all of the, the uh, evidence class there, I think, and uh, I will look into it. I know, I think I know who's putting them up. There are people that are helping, but I'm not privy to all that. And I appreciate all the help people are giving me, but I know you want to watch them, and I, I want you to be able to, so... Email me and remind me, or we can call and talk, and I can tell you what I found out. But thanks for letting me know. Um, while we're on that notice type of information, let me put this in there. Um, and I want to thank Murr, uh, who called yesterday, one of our regular listeners. And she has set up a chat room for the show. And I want to promote it. She asked me to promote it, and I wanted to. And uh, it's I, I appreciate and I know Brent does too, other people taking the load off here because we just can't do it all ourselves. Um, and the chat room address is Roger Sales, just spell my name, no spaces, no D in Roger and no, and S-A-Y-L-E-S, rogersales.chatango, C-H-A-T-A-N-G-O dot com. And she set that up and from the show yesterday, one of the things I wanted to talk about you may be interested in because it's pretty neat, is she had a picture up there that she put of Pete, the guy we spoke of yesterday, whose hunting preserve I was at in Argentina a couple of times, holding his custom-made $250,000 three-barrel gun there. And uh, so if anybody wants to see a picture of that, it's posted over at rogersales.com chatango.com and uh, Greg you can start posting stuff over there too it'd be a good center spot for the things we discuss and Murr has volunteered to do it and set it up so I wanted to help her promote it and we'll talk about it and it looks like a good forum for the people that like to participate in that manner for what it's worth um, so um, I'm, Stephanie, I'm assuming we got all the ground covered with you. Is that correct? Are you still with us? I am still with you, and that is, and I, mean, the, I, I did just want to add, thanks for that, Brent. Now, um, yeah, years of that, www.commonlawyer.com, and if you go to the events button, then you can, that's where you can find that, and then, and, and thanks again for that. And then the tax court, um, yeah, you know, it, it just is like a never, it keeps revolving. You know? yes. per, per, 
yeah, we lost our house and um, in bankruptcy, and then ninety five hundred dollars is is we we were getting into our new house and it burnt down. Our, we had some trailer out of land, and so Kurt took his retirement now for to help rebuild just so that we got a shop there. And it was ninety five hundred dollars. Kurt. He's like moving. It was a rule of fifty-five, and you're moving jobs, and so that was supposed to be all tax exempt and and judge and you know, they want um, and tax exempt and 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 whatever you call it hardship. And they said, well, you know, that rule of fifty-five is there. We agree, but you, we. They said that we couldn't have it, and then they, then they tried to get it back. So, you know, right now, they got, just like our, you know, we, we will start going exempt on our taxes, you know, listening to advice and get, taking your advice to get out of the corporations. And, you know, so they took some of that money back because even though we had filed exempt with our employer, one of the employers changed um, where they start taking his money again, so they took like four thousand dollars. So they won't give that back, and so that's where that ended up. It's a mess. Being dealing with those guys is an absolute nightmare, and I'm sorry you guys and other people are having to go through it. It's part of the yoke, which was placed on our necks back in the '30s, and we haven't been able to shake it. At too effectively at this point. Some of us are. I think my approach gets you out of it. I know I had sent them the affidavit originally in the early 90s when we filed the original paperwork because we didn't know to send it to the Secretary of State first. So that affidavit was on file with them and when they finally in the late 90s there stole $35,000 at the closing of my house after that, and Brent, I don't know if I've ever told you this, they sent me a letter and they said, well, we got the $30,000 that you owed, which was all hypothecated, by the way. And then we took an extra $5,000 for taxes we think you might owe in the future. And I've never heard <laughs> from them again. Now, what I thought as I've tried to go back and analyze that is that um, they had that on file and that once they got that money from the closing of my house, it satisfied any contractual basis that I had with them. And since then, I've not heard from them. Um, but it was a heck of an ordeal. I can tell you the one thing that was interesting to me, and it's one of those things I keep telling folks here, that this is a process and not an event. And it took uh -huh. me 10 years almost after this happened to realize what happened, okay? And I had put a bogus lien on the house from an offshore bogus company in the knowledge, legal knowledge that first in line in time, okay? And so uh -huh. when we went to the closing and the people that were buying the house, a sweet little newlyweds couple thought my house was their honeymoon nest and they were sitting across the table. They just sold their house the previous hour. And so we're sitting there, I had a witness there with me and the attorney, closing attorney comes in and he sits down and he looks over at me and he said, okay, Mr. Sales, I need a check for $35,000 and some odd cents made out to the IRS. Well, there's an old saying in real estate that when something goes wrong at a closing, 
that all, the only thing you hear is the click of everybody's eyeballs as they look at you. <laughs> there's, a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of truth in that, okay? And so I, I had no other choice but to tell him to go back and take it out of the proceeds of the house. And he said, he, and the closing attorney said, well, you know, we looked all over for this lien. I never could find this company. He said, it doesn't matter, though, because IRS steps to the head of the line. And then he went out and changed the figures, and we came back and got, did the deal. And it took me almost 10 years before I finally realized that the reason the IRS goes to the head of the line is because the lien's not on your house, it's on you. And that has to be satisfied before anything else can happen. So they're just an example of, of my saying to you guys that this is a process, okay? Let me see. Uh, uh, the, the, they say the lien. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Right. Oh, they say the lien. The courts say the lien. Such a lien is on your personal. Well, when they file it, they say it's on your personal and your real property, your personally, personality and your realty. Yep. That's what the language says. Yep. Now, if there's something in the law that says otherwise, uh, I'd like to know where it is. Well, it's in it's back in the exchequer in the process that England used. It's the because the 1040 form is a statute staple contract. And when you well, sign a statute confusion. staple contract according to that system of law, which is from as some of the old English jurists said at the time when it was instituted in England, said this process goes back to time out of mind. Okay, and it's ancient, and that's why they've used it because it works. And in that Jewish shetar, which is a 1040 form, when you sign it or when they put a dummy return in for you, what you become the property and anything that comes into your hands can be sold to satisfy that lien that's on you, the statute staple. That's why it worked that way. And that's why the attorney said the IRS goes to the head of the line because it's not on the house you're selling, it's on you. Well, I'd, I'd like to see how that works because, um, it, in effect, it seems it is on the person, but uh, it, well, it, it, the property, it says it's on the property. That's what it says. Okay, here's, and that's it. You're the property. It's just that the, the, we don't understand that system. I'll give you another example. How many, how many liens do you think, no, excuse me, let's get technically correct. How many notice of liens do you think they've filed? Well, first of all, where do they file them? In the property records office where you live, okay? Uh -huh. Secondly, uh -huh. when they put them in there, how many do you think have been filed since 1954, Brent? Tens oh, well, of millions? I don't know. Tens of millions? Oh, more than that by far, I'm sure. Okay, well then let me ask the question. When that they file that notice of lien, the only things that are on there, there's three pieces of information on that paper. Your name, where you live, and the amount you owe. That's the only things that are information-wise factual on there. So what? how oh. many out of those multi-million dollars, uh, multi-millions of lien, notice of liens that have been filed, how many of those people lived in a rental property? Oh, I don't know. Well, Lots if they sure. lived in a rental property, probably some good percentage, okay? If they live in a rental uh -huh. property, what properties the lien on? Well, it's on the property of the person that holds legal title to it. 
Well, but they can't that's put an IRS lien right. on you and come and yeah. seize your landlord's apartment. Oh, they do that kind of stuff, though. They do that. They 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 seize uh, rental property right when people are living in it. I've seen them do it. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm just saying that the property is you. That's the oh, point I'm trying to make. I'll now, they may what, be Brent, thinking that, but... The, I'll ahead, send you, I'll send you, I found a copy the other night. I don't think Glenn has got it up available, unfortunately, of John and Glenn's book on the tax system. And it is called Taxation uh -huh. by Misrepresentation, The Truth About Taxes in Plain English is the title. And they went back and uh -huh. researched Chitty, Price, all the old English authors that wrote on the exchequer and the system. And they wrote this book while they were actually in Petersburg Federal Prison together <laughs> after they stuck Glenn oh, in the same facility John was in. And they got to uh -huh. spend four hours a day discussing this stuff for a year and a half and uh -huh. putting it all together. And that book is a compilation of all the old people, the authors that wrote on the tax system and the exchequer and the process. And it is, I would add, the first time that information has been in print in over 250 years. Well, now when you go back in those ancient authors, my, any of the ancient laws, the principles are going to stay the same because they want the same result. But I'm satisfied that they don't work the same now. Because if they did, it wouldn't. Oh, no, they got the Well, they, they got the fit. Go ahead. They've changed the uh -huh. words. It's just like what we were talking about with tax court earlier. And the, the old process there was that they had a council of inquiry. I'm probably not getting the terms straight here, but, but I can uh -huh. tell you the system. They had a council of inquiry at the exchequer. And if you didn't voluntarily pay your taxes, they would send out investigators, just like the IRS does today, to talk to your neighbors and what's, out, what's his lifestyle, how much money does he spend, all that. And they'd come back and they'd conjure up a amount that they thought you owed, okay? And then they would take, and just like at the old banks, where you go to an old bank and you drive up and it's got that suction tube, and it sucks that plastic uh -huh. and they give your money. Well, it's like that. And they called it the office of the pipe because it was down below where the committee met and they would take these sheepskin uh, uh, contracts, basically, and shove them down the office of the pipe and that was the assessment. And they would enter it uh -huh. on the assessment. Now, if you disagreed with what they came up with, you could go and challenge it in a common law court with a jury of your peers. And it was only after it went through that challenge and you got that judgment and they would take that amount and put it on the rolls that it was valid. Now today, they've switched uh -huh. that, okay? They've just turned it. And it's just like you said, they just changed some of the words and the process is still basically the same. I'll go hunt that book up and, and send it to you, Brent, because I think it's very valuable for your knowledge and collection because it is very accurate and it is these old systems. And of course, it goes to the historical part about this all coming from 1285. The origins of this are 1285 when they passed a law in England called the Statute de Mercantoribus, 
the statute of the merchants to correct the problem and bring the merchants back to England. And that was the start of it. Uh -huh. It worked so well in those selected cities, Liverpool and whatever they were called, staple towns. And the mayor uh -huh. was named the, the mayor of the staple. And he was the one that if a debt was owed, the foreign merchant could come to him. He would put that debt under a staple statute staple bond or contract. And that made the person that owed the debt property. And anything that came into uh -huh. his hands could be taken and seized to satisfy the debt. And until the debt was satisfied, that happened. So that's the origins of it. It's the same thing. They're doing the same thing today. Um, so we got uh -huh. several folks that have joined us. I know Terrence was next. Doug's joined us. Daryl's hanging around circling the land. So uh, Terrence, what you got on your mind, brother? Uh, thanks, thanks for letting me in, Roger. I, I just wanted, wanted to, to offer uh, a little bit of my experience of uh, communicating with the, my sweetheart, IRS, um, whenever you approach them, uh, like the gentleman did with his letter, on his affidavit, I would write on it, copy, do yeah, not that's process. A, that's a good idea. Copy. Yeah, that's a good idea. It's too bad you can't get one certified and, from the Secretary of State that it's on file. Right. But uh, anything you send, they're going to try to process upon you. Uh, I recently had a uh, correspondence with them where I filed my 1040, and they sent me a letter back that they're going to give me my refund, except they're going to apply it to the 2009 obligation, which they haven't proven. But their refund offer was uh, substantially less than what I filed in my sworn affidavit, my sworn uh, uh, 1040 form. So I simply wrote him back and said, thank you kindly for your offer. I cannot accept the terms and conditions of your offer wherein it would prejudice my testimony as submitted on my 1040 form. Please process my 1040 form is submitted, a copy attached, and I write copy on it because if I don't write copy on that, that copy, they'll claim that, well, oh, there's another uh, frivolous penalty on it because I filed another form. And if it's a copy, they can't do that. And then I wait for them to write back, and they write back and say, well, we need 60 more days to respond. Uh, don't do anything right now. And uh, like I said, they wanted to apply it to 2009. They just write these love letters forever and ever and ever. But they did state on for 2018 taxes that my tax obligation was zero. So they agreed to my zero filing. They just got the numbers wrong. Yeah, well, I had a letter. And then they wanted. I had a letter from them agreeing with me one time that I didn't know any taxes. <laughs> they came after me, so they're like, it's like Brent says, they're like snakes, really. And that's why I like this preemptive approach, possibly cutting their heads off. But that's just me because I'm real argumentative, and 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 and, and uh, there's a there's a word for it in Spanish called la lucha. Have you ever heard that, Brent? La lucha? No. La lucha means fight. So anyway, that's oh, kind of the way I Hitting the weeds. Um, so Terrence, uh, well, look, keep us abreast I of, like your, it. of your developments, if you would. Do what? Who said what there? I said I like Thank it. Thank you, Roger. Okay. You're welcome, Terrence. Let me go on to Doug. 
We missed Doug a couple of weeks ago. I don't want to leave him out in the cold. Hey, Douglas, how you doing? Oh, I'm freezing to death. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's been swelty here uh, as of the last month or so. Uh, my reason for calling in, hello, everyone, Brent, Roger, and all the other uh, special people out there of the Radio Ranch Smorgasbord. I have a, I have a friend and a dear brother who fell into a situation where this notice of levy came about. And I gave some input and he tried this, that, and the other. And as I examined what was really a lack of process of the situation, what I found in my research was that this notice of levy has no teeth. It's a lack of process, but because it's filed with the county and then he had an employer, it's as if nobody, well, it's not as if, the fact is, is the people at the lower level, his employer and the county, they're either turning a blind eye uh, because they don't know due process or they're willing participants to just railroad this guy and steal his money. That's my two cents there. So there's a lack of due process, legal due process going on there. A, a notice, notice of levy is not a levy. Well, you're, see, now you don't get levy and lien con confused here, too. We were talking about notice of liens, and I wanted to make that point is why we got into it with specificity, is because it's not a lien. Mm. Evidently, the lien is on file up in the bowels of the Treasury Department, and this is a notice of that that's placed for them to execute it in the property records office where you live. And that is where they file every one of them, in the property records office. But it has to go through a process which it doesn't do. No, they, they well, don't go through no, well, legal they, process. They do. They go through an administrative process and they send you those letters. The first one is what we think is a confirmatory writing and if you don't respond to it, like most patriots don't, I'm going to throw it in the trash can. It's a very specialty type of contract in the UCC between merchants where one merchant is supposed to understand the nature of the writing. And they, if you throw it in the trash can and don't dis dishonor it, then it goes into a contract. Now, John and Glenn's feelings and mine, too, are that that is how they have the legal grounds in their own minds, in their own system, to put the dummy return in at the end. Okay? So that allows them, and if I, you don't answer that, that letter at the start, at the end when you haven't filed a 1040, that then gives them the ability to use that push 09 code and put in the substitute for return because the system has to have 
a 1040 form filed. It can't go forward without one being filed, whether you filed it or whether they put a substitute for return in for you. I understand that, and I agree with that uh, aspect there. It's similar and maybe the same as you get a letter from a debt collector. So if you don't respond, then by acquiescence, uh, certain processes uh, begin. And so I understand that aspect of it. But So yeah, the point is that they, they, do, they do have a process, and it is ancient, yeah. and they do follow it. The problem has been we haven't known what the process was, and we didn't understand it. Yes, this is a, a weave, a, a web of deceit that has to be untangled, like uh, I think uh, Daryl has mentioned a Gordian knot. It has to be untangled, specifically the way it was put together. That's a good so, description. Very interesting. It sure yeah. is. Well, very interesting, all of this stuff, and you have to, well... I, I, it doesn't matter whether it's the Bible, which is, for me, most important and has a lot of wisdom and knowledge in it, or it's this beast system, it is somewhat prudent for one who gets entangled in it and is under attack to spend some time to try to understand it. Of course... That's what your book has done, and, and many others over time have done, and what Brent does, too. So, you know, Doug, nothing, nothing spent, nothing gained. If you go back there to so, Revelation 18, and you go to the bottom of the verse where it's a listing of all the things that the merchants are, can no longer sell and why they're wailing, and the very last entrance, you want to talk about biblical and facts, and it says, and bodies and souls of men. And to my knowledge, they can't buy and sell you unless they own you. Yeah, and I was thinking uh, a thought in regards to the many words that have been spoken here today that in that system, uh, I believe it's explained in Revelation 12, but it's that when the B system is set up, nobody can buy or sell, and everybody's going along with it, and when the image of the beast is displayed, people have to bow down and worship the image of the beast. So this could be many things, but... That was the thought that sparked in my mind about this. It is a global, worldwide, powerful thing that, as I was saying, with my friend, and, and I've had dealings in courts and various, uh, the city and the electric company, and these clerks here, they... They're oblivious to the 
to what you're saying or what I was saying. So they go along with it and they they get their their cockles up somewhat because you're you're not going along. You're uppity. And you're very uppity to question these things. Yep. Now let me say, Doug, this is kind of interesting, a wrinkle that I've thought while you were talking. There is a case that could be made that we can't buy or sell now. Because you don't pay for anything. All you do is discharge debts. You don't pay for things with money of substance. So in essence, you're not buying and selling. You're just transferring. That's mind-blowing, but it's true. Wow. Yeah, great. Okay. So really, that prophecy could already said from one aspect to have been fulfilled. Let me get over here to Daryl and see what he's got to offer on all this today. Welcome there, Captain. Hey, uh, great show today. Uh, Brent, uh, Doug, Roger, uh, everybody, uh, very interesting to listen to. Um, I, I was I was listening on your discussion here about um, the uh, the lean, and uh, I, I just wanted to uh, bring forward a, a term that seems to be appropriate here is this is a self-help remedy of a, uh, a contracted body. Yep. And uh, uh, so um, in, in the terms of a, of a garnishment, okay, so, um, uh, so they put a notice of lien uh, on, on the public records, or the property records, well, uh, so you, you don't have any property. It's like Roger says, you're a renter. Well, uh, at this point then, uh, uh, they're not going to, uh, if, you're, if you're living in a 25-unit apartment complex, uh, the IRS, and you're a tenant there, the IRS is not going to come in and seize or have a claim on that 25-unit apartment building. I, I think that's the distinction there. Uh, so, uh, but they have this notice of lien at the property records where in their, the county seat where you reside. And, uh, uh, so, uh, if you don't have any property, well, uh, what are they going to do? Throw you into debtor's jail? Well, uh, they don't do that yet, uh, specifically uh, that I'm aware of. <clears throat> but what they can do then is along with the self-help of uh, lien, levy, garnishment, or seizure. Uh, and, and Brent, at any point here, uh, I, uh, I goof this up, uh, you know, intervene, please. Uh, they, will, they will garnish. They will garnish your uh, uh, currency, uh, their, their Federal Reserve notes. Uh, well, they do this through your employer, yep. who back. is a warrant officer, and a, a uh, withholding agent, and and they they order the withholding agent uh, to um, uh, garnish uh, you, your property. Uh, in this case, it would be uh, Federal Reserve notes. Uh, uh, I'm not sure where the uh, IRS could apply levy. I can tell uh, you what the example would be. I can tell you perfectly. Um, Daryl, hold on, I'll tell you. And that's the okay. reason there were so yeah. many insurance salesmen in the tax movement. 
is because insurance salesmen work on big residuals. And it's real easy for the IRS to go into their, okay. one of their buddy insurance companies and just steal it all. Okay. All right. So that would be a levy. Thank you. Uh, and then seizure. Well, um, I, I suppose at this point, if you uh, were um, the uh, had a certificate of title for an automobile, maybe they could seize that property. Uh, but if it's uh, a leased car, but, they can't. Uh, if it's a leased car, they can't because it's not yours. Yeah, yeah. So if it's a leased car, yeah, yeah, that would be that would be like a, a rental uh, uh, situation. But if if you had the certificate of title, which is not a warranter's uh, manufacturer's title, but if you had a certificate of title, maybe they could seize that. Um, but but this is all very consistent with the law law merchant, and uh, this is the law merchant system, which is a statute staple, as you said, uh, which is uh, another form of the Jewish shittar, which the uh, the Jews brought with them back out of Babylon. So, um, and you know, when you think um, about it, when you think I, about it, see, this is the interesting part to me. When you think about it, everything's dialectic. It's for good or evil. And that clause of those contracts has some very beneficial usages. And the example I've always used on the air is when you go buy a car. When you go buy a car and you sign that promissory note, it's a statute staple. And there's a recognizance in that contract. And the recognizance is that you'll abide by whatever time frames for payment are in the state's uh, statutes and if you don't abide by that they don't have to go to court and get on the docket because by the time they got to trial and got a judgment you might be down here in Ecuador with that truck okay so they just execute the self-help remedy of seizure because you haven't abided by the contract that you signed which contained the recognizance yeah well I, I, I just want to I, I, would like to uh, get to the uh, the penny drop, uh, the mic drop, the uh, don't the, the 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 end point here. Do not make a a deal with the devil and sign your name in cursive. <laughs> okay, don't quit. You, you're you're bringing these things on upon yourself by making a deal with well, the devil. You know, that was the point I was trying and, to make with Brent earlier, and I didn't get around to making the point very well, on the different types of those regulations. And what it means, because all the regulations are interpretive, what it means is you don't have to file. They're trite. They're completely correct. It's a voluntary system. But to override that, They've rigged it to where they can do this push 09 code at the back end and put in a substitute for return as if you signed it. And that, of course, puts the teeth in it. That's the teeth of the whole system is the push 09 code at the back end. And the government will not come off of that under any circumstances, or so I'm told by Glenn Ambord, who's taken it all the way to the Ninth Circuit. Well, 
Uh, Ron, I'm, I'm going to go on mute here. I'm going to go on mute. Okay, so. well, let me, let me hit Gary. <laughs> Gary came on, and, and I wanted to, he doesn't, we hadn't heard from him lately. Gary, first of all, let me ask you, how's mom, do, how's mom doing? Oh, Roger, she's, she's doing fine, thank you. She's plugging along and uh, just managing, I'll put it that way. So, okay. <laughs> I'm trying to keep her going and, and uh, keep her this side, this side on, up on the green here. So, uh, <laughs> so thanks for asking. But uh, greetings to you and Brent, Chris, Karen, Stephanie, Daryl, and Doug. And uh, this guy went through the whole, yeah, the whole litany there. Uh, but... In, in, the, uh, in the thread of talking about property uh, with Brent and that subject matter there, um, it is indeed an honor and a sincere pleasure to tell you I am free. I'm no longer property, Raj. Good for you, Gary. Congratulations. Thanks. It's a big step, so I, I, and I understand that's a big uh, step, okay? And I want, uh, you, you've deliberated on this for about a year and a half now, okay? And I want yes, to, sir. I I want to come back to the moment and bring the moment forward when I made the decision to move to Argentina and knew that I had to have a passport and for the first time went and yeah. got that passport application and right there at the top it said Secretary of State, which I know, knew already yeah. was the final authority, and then I saw that warning box where it says you can file documents including affidavits, and when I saw the word affidavit, I knew I had them. I yeah. knew you had I them. had them, and, right there. Yeah, a, a matter of unconsenting, I know I think Daryl talked about disconsenting, but Unconsenting too, um, you know. So it it is such oh, it's such a wonderful feeling. I I had no idea it would come over me this way, and I knew how I, I knew of the magnitude of this and what it all means. And I get it. I early on I got it, but it was just a matter of being ready. And for for some reason. Um, yeah, I, I thought I was going, going to earlier in the year, but I just quite wasn't ready. And yeah, earlier in the year up to that point, there was some fear there and trepidation. But as you learn and digest this information, realize how real and how, um, you know, how documented it is and, and how factual it is, you know, you realize you have the power. And I, I was talking to my brother the other night and I said, Congratulations. You know, it's like that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, but I was talking to my brother the other day, and, and I said, you know, just like the Wizard of Oz, and he's very interested in this, in this material and this subject, and he's planning on moving forward with it. And um, he has to get his ducks in a row, too. And um, so I told him, I said, even like the Wizard of Oz was all coded, maybe that fairy tale superhero Superman is kind of the same. Our whole lives, as we have been, I can gladly I can say I was a U.S. citizen, past tense. And, you know, your whole life you're going through that, you're kind of wearing an outer suit that you don't know the power is in that, un that suit underneath. Exactly. And so that Clark Kent shroud, that robe, is on the outside. And then after coming to find this out, you're derobing. And lo and behold, there's the S, and you have the power after all, well, you and know, they don't Gary, have it. 
I've recently, or I've said over the years that this is, as I've come to understand it, like you have, this is kryptonite to super ferrocite. Oh. So that's about the closest to Big the time. Superman analogy I've gotten, but I, there's a lot of truth there. Yeah. It seems to stop them in their tracks. And that's my experience yeah. and the fact that nobody in eight, eight and a half years or however long it's been has ever gotten back to me with one negative repercussion from doing this. Not one. Right. Ever. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. It, it's, oh, it's wonderful to hear that. And I know that there's so much positive I hear from everybody, you know, as they've, as they've gone down this road and, um, and it's just, it, it makes sense, and, you know, when you step back and think about it, God's way is simple. I mean, his laws are simple, straightforward, and it comes down to, you know, not hurting your fellow man or taking his stuff. And, you know, that, that simplicity, and, and so it is with, with, this, with your message and the way this all is carried out. And I was there at the, the clerk's office. I decided to do it Wednesday, by the way. And, and not for the September 11th, but it had nothing to do with the false flag uh, attack. And it had to do with what Thomas Paine said. And on, it, I did on the anniversary of what he quoted. And um, if I could read quickly here, Thomas Paine, you know, he, he wrote Common Sense, and that inspired, gave a lot of inspiration to the founding fathers on moving forward with revolution. And, but he said, we fight not to enslave, but to set a country free and to make room upon the earth for honest men to live in. Those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it. And that just spoke to me, and I thought, let's do it. Let's get it done. And, and I, you know, I want to be free, and it's like, you know, and I told my brother after I went through that, Wednesday that night I told him hey bro your your brother's free and he said really and I, and then as I was talking to him I said now I've stepped back in that pre-civil war pre-14th amendment but that pre-civil war atmosphere that jurisdiction where a man could just go down the road and no one would bother him hey where's your license you know where's your permit none of that you know and he was free so, um, but I was explaining that to him, and, and he is just really thrilled, and he wants to move forward. But real quickly, um, and I know others want to talk too, but I don't want to take this up, but um, on that day, I, I realized, you know, I, I joined the SPA. You know what that is, Raj? No, go ahead and fill us in, Gear. You, you know, the, the horse, you've heard of the horse whisperer? Yeah. Well, I've, I've joined the Sphincter Puckers of America, <laughs> the SPA. So the SPA, join the SPA. But, uh, but on that day, and we all have our, our dates that we filed, and I consider that VJ Day, not Victor over Japan, Victor over the Jews. And, and, and if Eric John Phelps was here, he'd say Victor over the Jesuits. But... Um, but I, you know, when once I, it was so simple, I couldn't believe that. I thought, yeah, just like Roger said, it, you know, just step right over here, you know, raise your right hand. And she didn't even say, um, she didn't even ask me. I was waiting for the, are you, are you a citizen? Are you a resident? I was ready to say no to both, uh, very firmly. <laughs> and she just said, 
raise your right hand. And she said, do you swear that everything presented here is, uh, is the truth? And, uh, and I said, I do. And uh, bang. And that, she said, step right over here, take your picture taken. And I was surprised she didn't ask me that. But, um, but anyway, uh, it, was a, it was such a good feeling. I mean, you know, I, I gave her the affidavit, and I said, this is to be attached. And uh, so she said, sure. It's real friendly, helpful. And I asked her, uh, I said, ma'am, uh, I'm just curious. Do you get many affidavits with uh, the U.S. National on there? And she said, yeah, now and then, occasionally. Really? And she said, it's very, she said, uh, it's very interesting. And uh, the, the, uh, the U.S. National, I said, and, you know, here, here's an open door, you know, and, but I don't want to, I, I could have opened the fire hydrant, but I know that's not what to do. I learned already, and as we all have. And um, so I thought, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to come to realize that most Americans don't realize there's a secondary, um, an additional American, um, I don't know if I word, use the word citizenship, but status. but I said uh, status, status. Is yeah, status. There, yeah, and maybe I said that, but but she said, yeah, that's very interesting, and and I left it at that. I just dropped a little seed. Hopefully, got her thinking, and maybe start digging a little bit, and that's it. So, but I but I walked away from there. This is my last point. I walked away from there, and I didn't realize I would have this come over me, but I felt washed. It was almost like, you know, I know you've talked about how this is such a spiritual thing. And it was like I had been clean or I stepped out of that and like I felt washed. That just that term came, it just kind of hit me. I thought, wow, that's interesting. And uh, so it's, it's an, a wonderful feeling. I'm glad to be here. Did and you, I thank you, you with you the bottom of my heart. Have you ever heard the old joke? And I'm going to uh, correlate it here. It's the original is falling in love is like wetting your pants with a dark suit on. Have you ever heard that? There you go. Well, yeah, I think, yeah, I think you can substitute yeah. filing, filing an affidavit is like wetting your pants with a dark suit on. It gives you a warm feeling, yeah. but nobody notices. <laughs> nobody, yeah. you got that right. That's for sure. Because it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's I think just why like I wet my pants that day. Life doesn't change uh. except for you. Right. Everything right. else goes on right. the way it is, and the people are oriented the way they were, but you've changed, yeah. okay? And the point I wanted yeah. to bring about that I was thinking of while you were relating your story to us, thank you very much, is the, you got to know your enemy. This is the Sun Tzu angle of this, you know? And you got to yeah, know your right. enemy, and you know your enemy. These guys aren't powerful, um, omni-powerful. They've had to come no in way. and use fraud and trickery and what they term magic to pull this wool over people's eyes. Right. Yep. Genius. Genius. It is yep. genius. It is. I had a yesterday. Uh, Chris, go come on, come on, buddy. You left and came back. What's your contribution? I have an epiphany yesterday. I was down at that appeal court fixed uh, where they already pre-decided what they were going to do before I came in, but it occurs to me that when you've changed your status, and of course the two statuses are talked about in Downs versus Bidwell, and tells us the dangers from two different statuses, 
But when you change your status, that now implements the constitutional diversity of citizenship clause. I think that's Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2, if I recall correctly. And that puts you in a whole different classification, gives you the standing as a natural man or woman to get... Yes, sir. It, that's a biggie right there because now those corporations can't be on par with you and parties must be of like kind to contend against one another. Um, you know, Brent, yesterday our friend Cody sent, a, sent me a letter to read that he'd written to the governor up there about his situation at the border. And he was ranting and raving, you, well, you took an oath to uphold the Constitution and all this stuff. And I wrote Cody back. I said, Cody, they're upholding the Constitution just fine. They're in, totally enforcing the 14th Amendment Clause. <laughs> and you're yeah. wasting your time and effort until you come to this realization. It doesn't just go for Cody, that goes for everybody. Until you understand there's a hidden separation there that heretofore, with most people becoming exposed to the information we present here, are not aware of it. They think there's just one. Roger, I want to bring up another point about uh, property. I'm changing the subject a little bit. That's okay. As we're talking, I'm thinking uh, liens on property, federal liens on property, follow the property like a tail follows the cow. They don't follow the person. And I uh, just throw that out for consideration when we're talking about liens being on people or liens being on property on the person uh, it's the confusion of words if, if what you're saying is true well then it's purposely confused the other way by words uh, words are used to confuse that way confuse that way but it is true once the property is gone the lien follows it, it doesn't follow you back um, here, now back to the original case that clued john in all to this it was an 1855 case and I think it's Lansbury versus New Jersey rental or something. Do you know? Do you remember that case right off the bat, Brent? Are you familiar with that? No. no. Well, and I'm, I know I've got the style of it wrong, but it was a jeopardy uh -huh. assessment case. And then several of the others that are very telling are uh, U.S. versus Bull is another one from the last century. And all those were jeopardy assessment cases. Now, the IRS still considers Lansbury to be an accurate case because they quoted it in one of their appeals a few years back, Glenn found. But that was a jeopardy assessment case and the property had been sold. And they went and grabbed it from the people that had bought it. But the guy that had sold it to them was the one that embezzled, he was a tax collector at uh, impost and excise taxes at the Port of New York and he had stolen a couple of million dollars, which was a ton of money back in the 1850s, and bought this land, and then, <laughs> and then he wow. had died, see? And because he uh, had died, they went after the people that he sold the land to. And it was in that right. case that the Supreme Court said, there is no due process in our Constitution as it applies to tax law. Therefore, we must go back to England and go on the process that they used. Well, that, that may be true, but it doesn't take away from the, 
the practical reality that the lien follows the property and not the person. You know, courts can say a million things, and it doesn't mean they're right. That's what I'm driving at. Matter of fact, I find that often they're wrong, so much so that many of them disagree. That's why the Supreme Court tries to harmonize. that are supposed to be experts on uh, disagree constantly. That's why lawyers are constantly going into the courts. One thing I've come to conclude, and I'm pretty sure on this, I don't think I'm speculating, uh, judges are judges simply because they make decisions, and they, uh, they don't know that they're right. They just have to make decisions. And so they often are very far off by their own biases, and they consistently make wrong decisions. For example, you're talking about the uh, property being sold. This guy, he sold the property, and then he sold it. Those are BFPs, the people that bought it. They were um, purchasers in good faith. It would be impossible, according to our common law, to undo those, to undo those, uh, those transactions. The only thing that they could seek, uh, the people that got screwed in that case, would be money from the government because he was acting as an agent of government, which they should have been doing. I don't know. But that's almost impossible, too, unfortunately. And that was the problem we ran into yesterday in the court was... Uh, property had been sold, and the whole point was that foreclosed the case. And we said, no, it doesn't. The case is still open. The case is still open because these people got robbed. And just because the robber took the, the property, which in that case was the IRS, and sold it to somebody else through a receivership doesn't mean that uh, they have no remedy. They now have a remedy against the United States. That was the point of the case. That's what the Seventh Circuit law is. But the Seventh Circuit disagrees with every other circuit. The Seventh Circuit says you can still go after the United States after they sell your property if they sold it wrongfully. Uh, every other federal circuit says, no, that's not true. You can't go after the United States, and you can't go after the person that purchased the property. So um, um, well, the lien, think, though, bottom line, to summarize, the lien, lien follows the property. Go ahead. I would think that they'd want to rule in your favor here so that the Supremes could get one where they've got diversity of opinion. Well, that's a good point. A good point, Roger. I'm glad you mentioned that. I hadn't got that far yet. You may be the guy that drives this forward to the Supreme Court. <laughs> well, that's, I know the kind of that's a great idea. They like those cases that. where there's diversity of opinion between the yeah. uh, uh, appellate circuits, I know. Hey, Ryan, I know over Like, I agree, Pertinier. Who else who wanted to say something? Was that Doug or Chris? Paul. Go ahead, Chris. Chris. There's a case called Chris Beggerly, B-E-G-G-E-R-L-Y, versus the state of Mississippi. It was an unlawful takings case of riparian water lands off the coast of Mississippi where they had seized it, but it was actually under a French or a Spanish, I don't remember which country, land grant. And the BLM claimed they couldn't find the land grant or the property they were talking about. But then years later, they came back and found it and Mr. Beggarly was able to retain value or the land that had been unlawfully taken by the state of Mississippi and the Bureau of Land Management. So it's a, sometimes you see some strange nuances that occur, but generally when a property's been stolen, it goes back to the original uh, owner in due course, unless the property can't be fixed, and then they give them value, and sometimes actually a crime you just cause a triple damages. Well, uh, let me uh -huh. ask you, Chris, while you're on the spot here, what happened in your situation yesterday? You say it was at a, was it at the state appellate level? No, it was district court here locally in the same building with all of them that are 
working in cahoots together, being common bar members in the same club, had a, uh, on the 5th, they had a get-together in Camara, supposedly at 3 a.m., with none of the parties invited, so it was a special tactical uh, meeting on how to deal with me because they didn't like me being in there, and naturally ruled against me and dismissed it, and I preserved it for appeal, and I have the appeal pretty well ready to go, a little bit of uh, polishing it up to uh, fit the circumstances, but uh, I won't quit. Now, you, you're in the Ninth Circuit, aren't you? You got to appeal to San Francisco, correct? Regrettably, no. I think uh, uh, because of my status, I may not have to go to that foreign USDC court. I may be able to go to the Federal Circuit Court of Claims and to the small D, small C in the U.S. Well, I'm dying for somebody to try and take one of these cases to the U.S. Court of Claims because I think that's the jurisdiction that they've hollowed out. That's the only one left, but. That may be speculation. I have no real facts except a strong gut feeling about that. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Uh, towards the end of the show here, Brent, you got anything you want to add? Uh, plus uh, all of your information, of course. We got a couple of minutes, though, so you get a little bit of breathing room today. Don't crowd you into the whistler. Yeah, I do, do want to say this, Roger. Roger. I want to say, say this to everybody that's listening. listening. If in doubt, shut up. <laughs> and uh, I'd say, but I'd push a little further, even if you aren't in doubt, even if you're sure, shut up until you know you're sure. Shut up. Button your lip. As Dad used to say, shut your tater trap. Shut your tater trap, he So put, put, put the stop on the talk. Uh, we, we all talk, talk too much, much, all of us, all of us talk too much, much. even those, those of us that don't talk much, much. When we, we do talk, we probably, uh, we probably shouldn't. Uh, I, I talk too much, judges talk too much, of course we got to talk on the radio just to keep the, the conversation going, Roger, it's our time to talk, freedom of speech, but most of the time we need to shut our mouths. I've known lawyers that don't talk at all unless they're in court. Boy, you get them in court, it's amazing, you didn't think they could talk. When I met Ron Paul in his office, the first time, first two times, first three times, I said, this guy will never run for president. He doesn't know how to talk. He doesn't talk. And he didn't talk. He let me do all the talking. He didn't say much anything. And then I found out that he was wise. When he doesn't have to talk, he doesn't. When he ran for president, he could talk, and he did talk. He talked well. That was his time to talk. Know when your time to talk is. Try to figure that out. Think it through. Well, Roger, back to anything else I want to say. Of course, I want people to go to the website, but you want to say something first. I did. I wanted to add something. I wanted to add it earlier, and I just came to this through pretty simple physiology. And that is I got two ears and one mouth, and that, I think, should tell you something. Yeah, yeah that's a good one, Roger. Uh, but uh, go to commonlawyer.com. I'm going to jump in with this, Roger, at the end, if it's okay. Commonlawyer.com and uh, take advantage of the free website. Go to Amazon.com, type in my name, Brent Allen Winters, and my books will come up. And you can see description of, descriptions of them there included in that is Excellence of the Common Law, Comparative Law Text, 958 pages. And then booklets on the right to remain silent and the jury and the four militia clauses of the United States Constitution, etc. And also a translation of the Bible from the original tongues. I like to call it toward a raw translation. Uh, people call it the winterized version. It's there too, Roger. And the law classes on Saturday were studying the law of contracts. You can see there on the website, commonlawyer.com, how to participate. You can see me, but I can't see you. 
And by telephone, if you want. You can participate that way. Thank you, Roger. Good timing today, Appreciate man. It. Hit it right on the whistle note there, Brent. Um, okay, well, th it was a really good show today. I think we covered a lot of good ground. I want to thank everybody that participated and uh, uh, brought something important for us to discuss. And uh, th these are real important subjects. So we'll be back Monday. Hope everybody has a good weekend. And uh, we'll see you. Maybe I can get my little technical snafu straightened out in the next couple of days. And uh, if not, I'll be back anyway. But you guys have a good weekend. Thanks for spending time with us. Gary, congratulations to you, my friend. And I'm real proud to see you do that. And uh, we'll discuss you, it Kevin. next week. So you guys have a good one. Thank you. You talk too much. You worry me to death. You talk too much. You worry me to death. <laughs>